Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Sydney, your host on the channel, and today I have Professor Daniel Adbiwa here to talk about his new book, which is called Mobility, Mobilization, and Counterinsurgencies, The Roots of Terror in an African Context. Um, Daniel is an assistant professor of African and African-American studies at Harvard University. Before joining the Harvard faculty, he was an assistant professor of conflict analysis and resolution at George Mason. Um, and a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House under the research theme, Global Shifts, Urbanization, Migration, and Climate Change. He earned his PhD from University of Oxford uh, as a Queen's, Queen Elizabeth House Fellow and an MPhil in Development Studies from Cambridge. <laughs> he is also a research and uh, his research and teaching focuses is on how state and non-state actors um, and forms of order and authority interpret penetrate and shape each other, and the specialization of material, materialization of power, mobility, um, and politics in contemporary African cities. He's the author of They Eat Our Sweat, Transport, Labor, Corruption, and Everyday Survival in Urban Nigeria, and Mobilization, Mobility, and Counterinsurgency, sorry, that's Mobility, Mobilization, and Counterinsurgency, The Routes of Terror in an African Context to our audience. I apologize. I should have slept last night. Um, <laughs> he's also co-authored a number of other books. For those of you who aren't academics, he's basically killing it. Anyways, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for being here. Why don't you just start us off by telling us why you wrote this book? So what's the story behind the story? Thank you, Sydney. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to be to be here and to talk about this book. Well, why did I write this book? Uh, I grew up uh, in Lagos, which is uh, Nigeria's commercial capital and Africa's largest uh, metropolis. And um, I was uh, often struck by the intensity of everyday life, particularly the intensity of the public transport sector and the whole politics and political economy uh, surrounding it. Um, in particular, I was struck by the level of violent extortion that took place uh, on the roads at checkpoints and roadblocks and junctions. Uh, for my doctoral dissertation at Oxford, I studied the links between uh, street level or everyday corruption uh, and the high level corruption, the political corruption that takes place, uh, uh, um, you know, at the elite, elite level. And I was particularly uh, interested in the micropolitics, uh, the relationships between um, transport union touts. Uh, or brokers uh, and transport operators who were often uh, on the margins uh, of the state and saw themselves as victims of, of, of these unions and of uh, street-level bureaucrats like the police. So I came into this research uh, on mobility, mobilization, and counterinsurgency having uh, done this work uh, on everyday corruption uh, in the uh, popular transport sector. Um, so having a fresh eyes to look at conflict, in particular through the lens of mobility and transport, was something that I benefited from 
um, my doctoral dissertation. And so that was how I came to, I guess, study um, the relationship between mobility and conflict in Northeast Nigeria, where uh, the Boko Haram insurgency has been raging on since 2009. Uh, I started to wonder why um, actors, social actors that were closest to what was going on, you know, the the motorcycle, commercial motorcyclists, um, the long distance uh, truckers, um, why, why their views were too often marginalized from the literature. Um, because, you know, the first time I went to uh, my degree, which was the, the bed place and heartland of the insurgency, um, I spoke with taxi operator, the, the taxi driver that actually took me from the airport to my residential area in Wulari. Um, he, you know, he told me, he started to talk about the insurgency and his experience. And I wondered, you know, I was struck by the amount of detail uh, and the amount of direct experience that he had about the insurgency. Uh, and so that got me really thinking about um, this untapped, what you might call subjugated knowledge um, that is that 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 nonetheless has a lot to teach teach us about the origins of the insurgency. And as I dug deep, I realized that the insurgency actually had uh, was shaped by transport. You know, the rise of the insurgency itself has a lot to do with the politics of transportation, the politics of corruption, of extortion, and inequality that I had experienced uh, in Southwest Nigeria and Lagos. Um, and so this was the beginning of mobility, mobilization, and counterinsurgency to try to uh, understand a conflict through the lens of what moves and what doesn't, uh, what is stuck, uh, um, uh, and, and to look at that relationship between the social and the physical, which mobility allows us uh, to do. Um, so this was really the, the motivation. Uh, and as I talk deeper again, I realized that even in the literature on mobility, too often the focus is on migration, uh, whereas mobility is much more um, migration and displacement, whereas mobility, uh, the everyday mobility, the ones that people encounter on a daily basis are too often shunted to the margins. Um, so this was, again, something that was keen to document the micropolitics of mobility in the context of terror. And this was perfect because mobility is also that space that allows the state and the non-state to interact. You know, it sort of blows that boundary between the state and, and the non-state, between the formal and the informal, the legal and the illegal, that is so often in academic literature separated. Um, so again, mobility became not just an, uh, a subject, but also a means through which I studied uh, the conflict. So it became a methodology, as it were. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit later on about the mobile ethnography that I used. Yeah, no, this 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 comes through really clearly. So just setting the scene for our audience who, like, unlike you and me, are probably not all peace researchers, um, just taking a guess because there aren't 5,000 peace researchers in the world, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> what... You make a claim early in the book that sort of mobility has been really overlooked by peace research, and you've laid out this claim a little bit. Can you do you have an idea about why it's been overlooked, and sort of also conflict has been overlooked by mobility scholars? Sort of like why do you think it is that it was in 2022 that someone was like, "I should put these together. This will be super productive." Because when you look at the final product, it seems obvious. Like, clearly, it wasn't obvious or someone would have done it before. But like, sort of like why did it get overlooked? And sort of like. Yeah, what are you hoping that this opens up? 
Yeah, no, this is a great question. I, as you were talking there, I was thinking about the the words of uh, um, the late Nigerian novelist Chinu Achebe, who talked about how he's found that the most simplest thing are the most difficult things for even the smartest uh, uh, people. And you're right, mobility is everywhere, and yet it is nowhere in the conflict literature. <laughs> um, and perhaps maybe um, one of the issues here is that the we 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 have been sort of we have studied on a, a sort of a um a philosophy that demarcates right a philosophy that puts people into dis- disciplinary boundaries again disciplinary which is meant to discipline people into particular fields of study and what that does is that it prevents us from answering some of the the key questions in today's world questions of conflict questions of climate change that that resist uh, disciplinary boundaries. Indeed, the questions that our students, that learners today are asking are not questions that are easily uh, uh, figured out through uh, a disciplinary lens. Um, and so I think this is one of the reasons why mobility scholars have sort of been in their own um, world and, and, and conflict scholars have sort of been in their own world, even though in reality these worlds sort of bleed into each other, especially in a terrain in a terrain of of of, of conflict uh, or uh, emergency. You know, I was just, I've just been reading about uh, the flooding, writing something about the flooding that is taking place in Nigeria, and I've been realizing the ways in which streets immediately were over, overtaken by water and became lakes, and and people uh, creatively uh, constructed wooden boats which they used to transport. Uh, uh, people uh, to safety. Uh, so mobility is always a, such a central aspect of crisis, any crisis. But unfortunately, it is too often separated. And I think part of the problem is that sort of disciplinary lens through which we like to study issues that makes us kind of comfortable. We're not comfortable with blurring boundaries, which is what mobility does. Um, and this is surprising um, because a lens, the lens of mobility helps us get closer to understanding uh, contemporary politics um, than perhaps any other frame, I would argue. You think about youth in Africa, for example, and even in the US, uh, they tend to defend, define themselves in the, through the idioms of, of mobility or the sense of being stuck, of having nowhere to go. Um, and you also know that mobility can sometimes map onto the frustration of not moving well from being a youth to an adult. Uh, poverty and inequality can be mapped from who can move and who cannot, uh, who feels stuck, who does not. Uh, you can also throw in the gendered lens uh, to that narrative. So mobility is very capacious and generative uh, as a lens for studying it. But I think too often we are comfortable in our own sort of disciplinary um, spaces that, that even issues that are similarly situated, uh, we are not able to do that. Uh, we prefer to social distance, as it were. Uh, and this, is this I think, is a problem because the issues of today, of today's world, are not issues that are easily, um, you know, tackled from one, any one lens. They are issues that need an interdisciplinary angle and mobility offers us a way forward. It, it, it really does. Um, I... I was struck as I was reading through this book with 
first of all, the way that you really like got down to the idioms that people use to describe sort of who moves and who doesn't. We have like notions of certain types of elite groups as jet setting. Um, and sort of we have all of the politics, particularly in academia, among people who generally speaking can move and can move rather freely sort of about whether we should stop flying because of climate change. And this idea is so deeply tied to our understandings of our place in the world is our ability to move and the fact that we can do this sort of as some way of creating a specific type of person. It, it was an extremely generative generative book and way to look at something. Uh, but anyways, um, yeah. So you've talked a little bit about why uh, mobility is overlooked by peace researchers. So let's get down to sort of the, the case study and the mobile ethnography you do sort of you spend a huge amount of time and it's really, really beautiful. I, I, I encourage our listeners to read the book, um, talking about the lives of transport workers in, in Nigeria. And one of the things that struck me, and this might be because you referenced some anthro literature that I'm just not super familiar with, is how you linked mobility, like physical mobility can move through space to mobility temporally, the ability to sort of like become an adult. Um, so your subjects here aren't just physically constrained or physically stuck. Um, they're, they're actually like sort of in some ways socially stuck. And you really link this because I think that this is, this is kind of one of the, the key, the key things that I got out of the book. So would you just walk our audience through sort of the link between these things and kind of how you got to it? Absolutely. And, and then maybe I begin from how I got to it because these were, um, there were theoretical, um, giants who sort of influenced my, my, my thinking in these, I mean, one of whom was, uh, the social theorist um, Michel Foucault, uh, who talks about visibility being a trap, uh, and you think about um, uh, um, also the, the scholars who have argued that uh, we are sort of trapped in a society of the spectacle, uh, and and we 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 are fascinated by what we see. We are fascinated by the spectacular, even as the spectral. Um, that which is there and not there often slips away from our grasp. Uh, but we know that um, in any society, uh, uh, politics itself is shaped not just by what is seen, what is visible, um, but also by what is invisible, what lies underneath. Indeed, in any crisis situation, even the experience of that crisis is not just an experience of, um, say, dispossession or displacement, but it's also um, there is an affective dimension to it. There is a psychological dimension to it. Uh, and so it's that relationship between the visible and the invisible, the resistance to the trap that visibility invites us into, um, is one that has sort of influenced how I have looked at mobility. And mobility allows us to sort of uh, bring the physical and metaphysical into conversation. Uh, and, and this is the way in which people in particular describe their lives. So in that sense, then, I was interested not just in the physical side of mobility, which is, for example, the um, the checkpoints, the roadblocks, uh, the extortion, um, uh, and the frustration and anger that, that surrounded that whole predatory politics, but also in the... Um, the social, in other words, how people experience um, subjectively mobility, uh, how people feel about their position in life, uh, people's struggles, not just for economic survival, but also for social recognition in society. And this was something that mobility allowed me to sort of delve into. 
So I give you an example. In northern Nigeria, a, a man's social and marital status is is closely and intimately related. So beca- becoming a man depends on the availability of resources to, to, to marry and to provide for one's dependents. So, so by keeping a household, a man acquires wealth in people, as it were, uh, and becomes a respectable uh, person in society. So one of the key groups that we attracted to Boko Haram um, this uh, uh, jihadist group um, were commercial motorcyclists. Uh, commercial motorcyclists uh, is a practical occupation, what you might call an informal work, um, a work that is not recognized by the state, but nonetheless constitutes the, the backbone of transportation, transportation in many parts of Africa and the world, really. And so these, 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 Operators were mostly young men uh, who you might call dirty workers, uh, people who were stigmatized and marginalized, people who were seen as worthless, having bad reputation. Um, these were, but, but, but they themselves did not see themselves in this sort of spectacular light. They saw themselves as um, struggling to survive like any other decent worker. Um, uh, and, and deploying tactics and strategies for that survival. So these were the young men that were initially drawn to to Boko Haram, and and they were drawn to Boko Haram because they, in their struggle for survival, they often encountered the the predatory nature of the states. They often encountered police officers on the road who would extort their hard earned money, who would, but not just extort their hard earned money, who would insult them. So they experienced the shame. Um, the 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 sense that they were not man enough uh, while navigating, you know, these roads. But they were also very keenly aware of the inequality of society. So they would take people to the wealthiest past path path of the of of the states. But they will also take people to low income, poor neighborhoods. So they were starkly aware of the spatial dimension of poverty. And, and the materialization of inequality at checkpoints and, and, and power as well, and powerlessness. So these sort of set the scene for them when a group like Boko Haram came promising them dignity, promising them, um, you know, real material benefits. Um, they saw the opportunity through the Boko Haram insurgents, through the Boko Haram group to become, um, to become really, to be seen in society, to become somebody important in society, to reclaim, their position as men in society, and most of all, most importantly, to to get married and 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 acquire the status of adulthood. So these 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 young men, um, one can look at them through both physical and social mobility. They the motorcycle was the symbol, the physical symbol of their uh, of 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 their citizenship, as it were. Um, but also it was through that physical symbol that they were able to attain the social aspect of adulthood. In other words, the recognition as human beings, the recognition as men, and take their rightful place uh, in the community. So you see the ways in which the physical and the social interact in very powerful ways to shed light on um, you know, what it means to be to be a person in a particular society, what it means to have roots in a particular society or to be a mere dangler in that particular society. So mobility allowed me to understand the relationship between 
those you may call the incorporated persons and those you, would, you may call the non-incorporated persons in society. And oftentimes, um, what Boko Haram afforded to the non-incorporated persons, these young motorcyclists, was an opportunity to be incorporated into society and to be considered important. Um, so this was this was really the power of mobility is that it reflects it, it, it reinforces um, uh, power and powerlessness in society. And through the lens of mobility, you can understand inequality and people's struggle to attain um, not just physical, but also social um, social recognition. Awesome. Um, I think that just segues us in as we're sort of like walking through the things that you wrote about. Would you sort of talk a little bit about the motorcycle law that was passed in 2009 and how this sort of led to what we politely call the literature an uptick in violence. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's striking again. Yet yeah, this is another instance of such a, a banal, um, you know, law, such a banal situation escalating into um, a total war. Really, um, you think about what has a motorcycle helmet got to do with what is now regarded as one of the um, deadliest insurgency uh, in the world. Uh, well, a lot, a lot, really, uh, because uh, as I said, the backbone of the program insurgency were really commercial motorcyclists who um, who had so much knowledge, local knowledge of 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 the space they inhabited, because they took people to every nook and and uh, uh, every aspect of uh, every every part of of a particular state. So they were very knowledgeable people. Um, even though they were stigmatized at the same time by society. Uh, and what happened was that they were often um, in direct contact with uh, corrupt state uh, officials, and particularly police officers, traffic inspectors, and the likes. Um, and the program members then, um, so how the motorcycle helmet law um, um, uh, conflict happened was that uh, in 2009, um, Nigeria sort of introduced um, motorcycle helmet. Um, well, the the official stories it was introduced for protection of uh, motorcyclists and their passengers, and everybody was mandated to to wear you know helmets, whether you were a motorcyclist or you were a passenger. But the on the other, the on informal story is that there were uh, tensions between Boko Haram and the, um, you know, political leaders uh, in Borno State, which was uh, the the heartland of the insurgency at the time. So this helmet law was also instrumental, politically instrumental for the government. It was a way of um, of putting Boko Haram, as it were, into uh, in its place. Uh, but the Boko Haram members were uh, predominantly Muslim, uh, and many of them refused to wear helmets because it was against their religion. But there was also a very practical dimension to this refusal in the sense that they just could not afford the the helmet. Um, um, the, the helmet cost about $29 in, in a country where more than 70% of the people survive on less than $1 a day. So this is just not affordable. Um, um, so the issue became a flashpoint that would uh, morph into a face-off between Boko Haram and, uh, and on the one hand and corrupt and trigger-happy 
state security forces, on the other hand. Uh, and it came to a head uh, on this particular day when 17 members uh, were shot and injured by um, by uh, security forces. Um, so that was a way of looking at how transport regulations uh, and the manner of the enforcement were very much part of the transformation of the Boko Haram insurgency itself, uh, because this proved in many ways to be the turning point. This did not begin Boko Haram, but in many ways, it had a key role to play in the escalation uh, of that conflict, uh, because things went um, things things took a turn for the worse after this uh, after this. Uh, flashpoint and the reluctance of the state itself to apologize for what happened, for the injustice that happened. Um, uh, and obviously, uh, Boko Haram would, would move from uh, a group of angry young men into a full-blown insurgency after this event. Yeah, so I think that's a good segue because everywhere in this book is state violence. Um, and even in the places like in, in written literature where you would expect the most, which is peace research, you often don't hear as much about state violence as you would expect. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm just really interested if you could talk a little bit to our readers about these sort of like systems of petty state violence. I think you've written about them in other places and you definitely write about it here sort of like how they work, how they link sort of all the way up and all the way down in society. You can talk about recent movements. I know that during the Black Lives Matter movement worldwide, there was a large like sort of like group in Nigeria who were against a specific sort of or like sort of that was about police violence, sort of like in all of all of these types of systems in Nigeria and really sort of like give our audience that picture that you give in the book. Absolutely. And this is, again, one of the power of mobility, because I said earlier, mobility allows us to see that blood boundaries between the state and the society. Um, and through the lens of mobility, then one is able to pay attention to not just, um, you know, because mobility is about relationality. So one is able to pay attention not just to the weaker aspects of the relationality, the non-state, um, but one can pay attention to the state itself. So in that in that sense, then, because of the lens of mobility, I'm focusing not just on Boko Haram violence, but I'm looking at how state violence and state actions or inactions also triggered this uh, insurgency. And one of the one of the spaces where you can that, where state violence is most eye catching uh, is this, this space of transport. Uh, transportation is the very, um, you know, illustration of state violence, the way in which it is organized, the ways in which it is controlled, uh, the way in which, uh, people in this sector are extorted by officers of authority. Um, this is the definition of violence. And often it's not just violence as in physical violence. It's often the threat of violence that, that exists, that, that is enough to, to, to sort of exploit uh, people on the margins of the state. So state violence was central to the rise of the Boko Haram insurgency. As I said earlier, most members of Boko Haram were um, commercial motorcyclists. And these commercial motorcyclists already had a grievance towards the state because of the way in which the state would often extort their hard-earned money. And, and, and they felt that this was an injustice on the part of the state. Uh, and they, um, but, but they had nowhere to go to then. And many people that I spoke to would say something like, you know, they collect a hard-earned money. What else can I do? To whom else can I go to? I just 
leave it for them and report to God. That's often what they say. But not not no longer when when Boko Haram came into the scene, they began to see that there were ways in which they could really challenge this violence of of the state. And so um, they were no longer satisfied with voicing their discontent within the architecture of the state. Instead, they exited the system altogether uh, and launched uh, um, and, and sought to to find uh, another another state, really, uh, in the form of the Sharia, the Sharia state, Sharia governed uh, state. So, in that sense, then one can see Boko Haram as well. One can see it in spectacular fashion as a terrorist group. But on a more spectral level, one can see Bukram as a critique of a state that doesn't work for the people, as a critique of a predatory state, a state that never treats people as people, uh, a state that works for itself. Uh, and this is where perhaps uh, a movement, social movements like Black Lives Matter and Answers come into the scene, because they are also movements, not just against the spectacular violence of the state, but they are also movements against that spectral dimension. The, that, the, that whole, for example, question about why um, you know, money is invested in prisons uh, rather than in schools, uh, uh, but also in Nigeria as well, um, the answers movement against police brutality moved quickly from a physical direct violence that took place again on the road. <laughs> Uh, um, when police officers uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, extorted money from this unknown uh, victim and left 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 him by the roadside uh, and eloped uh, and escaped with his uh, SUV. So so again, the road is a flashpoint of of violence. But but the point I'm making then is that is but the road is just. It allows us to start that conversation to move from the physical to the more spectral. So initially it was to end SARS, which was this special anti-robbery squad, but quickly those voices morphed into ending bad governance, ending um, the naturalization of young people as criminals. Uh, So again, it moved very quickly into the spectral dimension as well, showing the relationship between the physical and the social. So in that sense, then, we have seen great movements of our time recognizing that the state is at the very hard heart of um, um, the um, is, is at the very heart of the uh, marginalization and the uh, and and the um, stigmatization of large sections of the population but they also recognize that the state is not some homogeneous entity uh, but the state is quite diffuse uh, and and so they are able to link the state to um, global capitalism that 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 um, that undoes uh, many lives and and just literally exhausts the body of of of, of many people, um, and so what we see here is uh, the ways in which uh, the state really accumulates uh, by 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 dispossessing um, the poorest people in society, but we also see. Uh, a group of people. We, we see two 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 groups, right? We see in in Boko Haram and in the Answers Movement. We see a group that it has gotten tired of voicing their dissatisfaction within the architecture of the state and have decided now to fight back through another means, which is to exit the state altogether to try to displace it violently. In the Answers Movement, on the other hand, we see a, a group that criticizes state violence, but also recognizes that 
um, the ways in which police officers as well are what you might call, what one scholar calls subalterns of the state, the ways in which they are also victims of uh, poor salaries from the state. So they are calling for the, dis the disbandment of the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, which is a police unit within the Nigeria Police Force, but they are also calling for improved working conditions for the wider police sector. So they're demonstrating the need for better policing rather than posturing. You know, um, but on the other hand, in Black Lives Matter, we're seeing increasing voices that are now tired entirely with this police system and perhaps the recognition that the police would not change. And so they are calling altogether for um, an abolition of the police establishment as we know it. Um, so, so we've seen these different reactions to the manifestation of state violence in both its physical and social form with some. Uh, voicing their dissatisfaction within the state and others exiting the state altogether and 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 uh, supporting a sort of a violent um, displacement of this of this institution. So what mobility again does is that it allows us to see all these various uh, nuances. It's not one sort of a one way story. You know, it's a more complex story, and even the actors involved, you know, ranges from middle class youth to you know, youth who are seen as, you know, the the wretched of the earth, if you want to use evoke that Fanonian term. Um, so it, it it blends, it's also intergenerational as well. So it brings a range of people together, uh, 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 congregating around the issue of, um, of, of stockedness, of a situation that is no longer working for the majority of people. And people um, and w what spectacular violence does is that it gets us to a point where people say enough is enough. Um, enough is enough after answers. Enough is enough after the motorcycle helmet law that, you know, and the flashpoints that led to the uh, uh, injury to 17 members of the group. So again, but we cannot be trapped in that visibility. We cannot be trapped that we have to move into the social as well and to see how that interacts. So this is the ways in which we begin to see mobility very much related to not just conflict but also agency the capacity for action that is being displayed by a range of people across across the world um awesome so i guess one thing that sticks out stuck out to me reading through this book is the literature cited in it sort of like the discussions in it the way you talk about it is is not unique to Northeast Nigeria. You began here talking about sort of like how you got this, this idea to do this ethnography living in, in Lagos. Um, you cite a lot um, discussions about, I believe it was Ghanaian sort of like transport workers, right? Um, you, you quite often sort of make claims that are rather sweeping about sort of like being a youth or sort of stuckness among African youth writ large. And sort of as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, these are some rather sweeping claims. And then I'm thinking about it, and, and it's clear this isn't an accident. Um, so sort of explain to our to our audience sort of how it is that that looking at Northeast at Northeast Nigeria and doing sort of like an ethnography here, what this what this can tell us and what this this micro study of mobility or regional study of mobility can tell us about about sort of both insurgency, about violence, about agency, what what it can tell us that sort of allows you to substantiate these, these claims, these discussions about, about a continent or about a world, um, which which you do make these claims, sort of like, how is it that we're able to go from from sort of like, you know, you have a picture from sitting at a train station to being able to say something about about a social space or about a larger social space? 
Absolutely. And that's a great question. And um, even this book, even though this book focuses on Northeast Nigeria and more broadly the Lake Chad Basin, the concept of mobility, the concept, the concept of being stuck, of, of, of entrapment, of, of um, state violence, the extent, um, you know, beyond, far beyond um, the borders of Nigeria. Um, um, and, you know, I teach a course here at Harvard uh, on, uh, on youth. Uh, and one of the experiences, one of one thing I've learned is the ways in which the way uh, the ways in which the self narrations of young people about their condition, you know, connect uh, very, uh, very, very nicely to uh, what is happening uh, elsewhere uh, in, in 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 Nigeria. So. So this is really, really interesting uh, to see the language of, 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 of mobility itself as being a universal language. Uh, and Nigeria does not have uh, any kind of, it's not sui generis, it's Nigeria. It's not unique to the space in, in Nigeria. Um, but also the way in the instrumentality of mobility in conflict is also something that is not unique to Nigeria. We know that uh, in Central African Republic, in Mali, in Liberia, in Colombia, in Palestine, in Afghanistan, in Sri Lanka, issues of mobility and immobility are front and center in the conflicts that are taking place there. Or, unfortunately, scholars too often uh, do not see this issue that is so routine. So they ignore what is obvious, uh, most obvious in the conflict, which is the arrangement of, of checkpoints uh, and control uh, and, and, and and checkpoints and control by security forces. So so this is um, this is this is such an important uh, aspect uh, uh, that I wanted to draw out to show ways in which insurgency itself is rooted in in in, in mobility. Awesome, you do this really well. I think one of my like favorite little anecdotes that I had never thought about until now was you talk about, and it's not even from Africa. It's from um, it's from the Arabian Peninsula. You talk about how the, I want to say, the early sort of Muslim brotherhood, who are, I believe it was, who were fighting against sort of the early Al Saud family, thought that the, the, that, sorry, cars were evil. You're like, no wonder they thought they were evil. These were the form of mobility being used to make counterinsurgency possible. And that was like a light bulb moment for you. Like, no wonder they thought that these things were her up. Clearly they didn't like them. Like this is this was the essence of, of sort of, of of state counterinsurgency. It, it was it was a really ex excellent example that sort of like tied between them. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, these 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 are so mobility itself imbued into mobility subversion, right? Uh, the state is terrified of, of, of mobile workers, mobility. Excuse me. Even the space of mobility, uh, the railway stations, for example, where historically spaces were unions, we will will you know coagulate and and where uh, people who were seen as enemies of the state would would meet uh, to concoct their plans. And so 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 spaces of mobility were always tightly surveilled by the state because uh, these were seen as the the, the biggest threat to, to state power and authority. Uh, and so too with Boko Haram, uh, because uh, it's found that Muhammad Yusuf uh, 
recruited many of his followers in and around the now uh, defunct railway station. Um, so mobility is very central, and in in you know in 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 Palestine, people talk about scholars talk about the imaginary line, uh, the line that is. Uh, uh, you know, there and not there, and it's designed to make uh, 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 people fail, uh, to make people victims of the state. So questions of mobility, if you probe deeper, you would quickly see uh, are central to many lives and many, many organizations, uh, as uh, scholars have pointed out. Uh, what is missing is that these narratives do not draw into the, the relational power of mobility to sort of connect this conflict. Uh, too often, uh, again, perhaps maybe due to disciplinary, uh, you know, boundaries and also the incentives that are there for people to work within their own disciplines, um, um, and the anxiety of 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 interdisciplinarity means that people don't see how these things connect. And so, one of the one of the aim of this book was to ensure that. Um, you know, especially in the conclusion that uh, different conflicts from different parts of the world are pulled into this conversation and people can go away thinking, you know, what can I learn differently about this conflict when I look at it through the lens of mobility? What can I learn about Black Lives Matter and police brutality when I look at it through the lens of what take place, what takes place on the road, at checkpoints, at traffic stops? Um, what can I learn about... Uh, climate change um, uh, and, and climate disasters that are happening uh, uh, in the world when I look at the ways in which uh, infrastructures, transport infrastructures uh, are constructed or not constructed, uh, where, they are, where they are placed. Um, so these, these mobility offers you this fresh angle to look at something so banal, <laughs> something that has become so banal that it's, it's sort of slipped into the spectrum, it's become invisible, but nonetheless continues to influence um, the politics of, of, of everyday life. Awesome. Um, yeah, and so I will toss you the same softball question I promised I'd toss you, sort of, and you've really covered most of it, sort of, but in like, is there anything else you would like our audience to take away or are there any like sort of key things that sort of like you conclude on that you're pointing to for future research that you really sort of want our listeners to like sort of, if you were, you know, writing an article and your advisor, or you, you now are the advisor, sort of like tells you, you know, don't hide the conclusion. I like put it right there and make sure everyone walks away with it. Sort of like, what is it that you want our audience to take home? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I, earlier on, I probably pro promised to talk about the mobile ethnography. And one of the things I've learned from my combined research, whether that was on everyday corruption in the transport sector in Lagos or on the insurgency in Northeast Nigeria was that Mobility was not just the focus of my study, it was the methodology as well. So usually I will, um, you know, I'll be in the front seat or in the back seat of the vehicle talking to passengers or the driver about the experience, even as they went through um, these spaces, even as they went through checkpoints and experienced extortion. So I could tap into their feelings. I could smell the environment. I could touch what was going on. So mobility then, or what you might call mobile ethnography, was very central to to experiencing the world of the driver or the conductor or the people that you're studying as they move through it. And this was something very vital for me. But also, many people who are 
big travelers will tell you that um, some of the biggest insights they've learned in context have come from very banal discussions with taxi drivers. Uh, so, so people, these, these actors have their hands on the pulse of what is going on. Um, so why not talk to them, find out their experiences in the situation, and you would be shocked about how much they know about not just what is going on, but how much creativity they have about how the situation that is going on can be resolved. Um, so even for policymakers, people who would watch this uh, 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 podcast, people who listen to this pod- podcast, um, um, who are not academics, but come at it from the angle of policymaking, I would say sometimes the solution already lies in the people that are there, uh, but are still rendered invisible. Talk to them. They have ideas about uh, decision-making processes that impact on their lives. Uh, so this is one of my biggest lessons, to invite people not just to focus on migration or mobility, but to also think critically about how this can be method, how this uh, can be an approach for studying anything, really. Uh, uh, and so that that's my invitation. Use, treat mobility as method. Awesome. Um, it really comes through in this book. Um, I, I, I cannot recommend sort of our, our audience sort of go get this book, get your hands on a copy, get it at your library, order it online, do what you got to do to get the book, just do it. Um, but anyways, yeah. So our traditional last question is, what are you working on next? So I assume from looking at your sort of, A, the fact that you have to you work at Harvard, which means you have to publish something. Um, but also looking at the density of books coming out, you're probably not just going to go on a seven-year vacation. So what is it that you are currently working on next? Yes, no, that's a great question. Um, so I am currently working on um, a book that looks at uh, another form of mobility, what you might call emotions. <laughs> um, so I am looking at the centrality of emotions and affect. Uh, to understanding uh, people's decision-making processes, but also people's survival survival tactics uh, in the context of conflict. Uh, in particular, I am looking at um, these group of young men and women known as the Civilian Joint Task Force who emerged uh, in the wake of the Boko Haram conflict, uh, but who who also experienced the state violence that we've been talking about, similar to the Boko Haram youth, but who have made a decision not to exit the state uh, and join Boko Haram, but to support state security forces that they themselves admit are indiscriminately violent uh, towards them. Um, so this is this is something that I am uh, uh, eager to understand uh, this puzzling decision to support the states that also uh, simultaneously uh, victimizes victimizes them. And I argue in this book that to understand this complex uh, decision, one has to understand it through the lens of emotions. Emotions are capacious. They allow, allow us to 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 see not just uh, the negativity, the negative side of emotions, emotions of um, dissatisfaction, but also emotions of positivity, pos- positivity of hope. Uh, so these young people are hoping for uh, the state, despite uh, um, not have not being happy with the politics. You know, they never lose faith in the political, and so this is something that I'm working on at the moment. 
um, awesome. And I hope when you finish that book um, that you come on to talk to us. Um, and so finally, I asked you and I ask everyone to come with some sort of book recommendation, essay recommendation. Honestly, you can recommend a YouTube video you laughed at last night. Give us something that sort of like our audience can can read that is not besides this book. You're not allowed to recommend your own book. That would be tacked. <laughs> well, I can connect that to where I ended, um, which is that I'm reading um, um, Laura Belland's book, The Late uh, Affect Theorist Laura Belland. Uh, has written a fascinating book called uh, Cruel Optimism. Uh, and the central idea of the book is really how or is trying to understand why people remain attached to a subject to an object that does damage to them, uh, that hurts them. Um, how do we explain this cruel optimism we see all around us? For example, why did the ANSYS youth in Nigeria continue to uh, support uh, a police establishment that they would admit has uh, defied every form of reform? Uh, uh, and that manifests itself really as a violent entity, so much so that people never really go to the police for anything. Um, people are terrified of reporting any incident to the police. Why do we still, uh, why does the idea of doing away with the police still frighten us so much? Why? What explains this cruel optimism? What explains, for example, this group that I'm now working on in this book, their hope for the state, despite the states victimizing them? Um, and you can look at that also in the context of interpersonal relationships as well. Why do people stay in relationships that hurt them? Uh, so that's that's a fascinating book that Laura Belland introduces us to, and and I would invite um, listeners to 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 check it out. Awesome. Well, that that wraps it up just on time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, that was one of the best interviews I've done. The book is Mobility, Mobilization, and Counterinsurgency, The Routes of Terror in the African Context. My guest is Daniel Agbibwa. Um, I'm Sydney. Um, signing off. Have a good one. <laughs>